Welcome to the Insurance Post podcast. I'm Emran Hughes, editor of Insurance Post, and today I'm joined by Managing General Agents Association's Mike Keating, Specialist Risk Group's Claire Lebec, and 66 Advisories Michael 66, and to talk about what regulators have in store for insurers and brokers. Today on the Insurance Post podcast, I am joined by Mike Keating, CEO of the Managing General Agents Association, Claire Lebec, Group Chief Operating Officer of Specialist Risk Group, and Michael Siksik, Managing Director of Siksik Advisory. They are going to share their knowledge of rule changes looming on the horizon for the industry and what action insurers need to take to meet the regulator's requirements. Hi, Mike, Claire and Michael. Welcome to the Insurance Post podcast. Hi, Emma. Good morning, Emma. Good morning, Emma. So, um, Mike, if I start with you, what's on the agenda for insurance supervision when it comes to diversity and inclusion, plus environmental, social and governance issues for the latter half of 2023? What's on your radar? Okay, so if I look at our membership, uh, first and foremost, we just recently launched for our members a a comprehensive and forensic DE&I training program. Uh, one which goes beyond sort of the briefing and part of that was really driven for the MGA members to be ahead of the curve in terms of their DNI sort of strategy and actually embedding it into their businesses and this is actually driven clearly by uh, part of it by the regulator in terms of having a very close eye in terms of DNI within businesses clearly with a view to uh, ensure that the right culture is uh, started at the top and embedded down. So, you know, we're pleased about that from an association perspective. Uh, Our members really should expect to be asked for more data, more granular data around gender, uh, ethnicity, uh, everything which actually is is uh, embedded by a DNI, uh, and it'll only just include, only just raise actually the profile, and it will become more. And it's not a burden at all. It's something all businesses should embrace and should be part of a hygiene factor. But they can expect to be uh, demands from the regulator in terms of ensuring that the culture is starting at the top. It is actually cascaded down. There is a clear inclusivity sort of program within that business and the regulator will be expecting to see that. If I turn quickly now to ESG, uh, and again speaking to you know our members, insurers, lawyers, etc., we see that uh, as a period of transition, uh, and what that transition looks like, I think personally is still to emerge, certainly for our members. Some insurers, as we know, well publicised, have a net zero target. Uh, I think that they've set very sort of significant challenges to achieve that. But I suppose uh, DE and I would say is more embedded uh, in terms of in the line of sight of the regulator. I think ESG currently is is in a period of transition. And Michael, would you agree? What do you what what what's on the radar? What's approaching in terms of insurance supervision? So I think first of all, um, DNI is not a, a new thing. So it has been on the supervision radar for I would say the last two or three years. And what is interesting is coming from a prudential, so from the PRA, but also from a conduct and from the FCA. So if I take in turn, from a PRA perspective, they, they see diversity as a as a key element on managing risk. So it's, it's broader than just the DNI, as we understand, is also diversity of thought, diversity of expertise, and they, they do a link with diversity means better risk management at the board level and the management. So this is DNI for a PRA. ESG, of course, with a PRA angle, has been a lot in the last 18 months around climate change. 
and climate change as a financial risk. And both elements, climate change and DNI, appears in the priority for this year for the PRA. So, again, expecting even more um, dialogue and exchange on that. From the FCA perspective, um, I think important to note uh, a discussion paper that has been issued just very few weeks ago on sustainable finance. And what this uh, paper is doing is putting the FCA reflection, so it's a thought leadership piece on what should be a sustainable objective for firms. And I think it's really moving to the, to the next step. So if I follow from what Mike was just saying, is the next level of ESG, and, and they are putting their reflection there for the market to discuss and engage around what does it mean to have a sustainable objective as a firm. Claire, um, it, it, would you? I think Michael's touched on there. You know, a lot of cro- cross-sectioning and a lot of this stuff that's coming up on the agenda. Yeah, I think the things that we've got our eye on at the Specialist Risk Group, obviously, is diversity in the keenly awaited uh, consultation paper, and then obviously the policy. Hopefully, later this year, it's be, it's been delayed quite significantly. So, um, I think we're all waiting in eager anticipation of that. Also, the um, review and the consultation on the SMCR regime. Um, and, and the element of n- non-financial misconduct on that, which I think is really important. Hopefully we'll get some more clarity around what that actually means. Um, and I think it's interesting, sort of like the mute music, talking about that in relation to f- fit and proper, not just within your um, your dealings within a firm, but e- equally externally as well. And there have been some important legal cases around that and the implications for us as a broking firm and for everybody that is in within that um, SMCR regime, I think it will be really important. Um, I think also the review on corporate governance, I think that's quite an interesting element and that obviously brings in some of the points that uh, Michael was making around uh, diversity um, and ensuring that you have got that diversity of thought, that cognizant diversity that's so important. Um, But I think so for us those two things are quite important, that that consultation paper on diversity and the changes to corporate governance and SMCR. It's obviously so important. It's the tone from the top. And a lot of those things that I've been touching on really speak to those two things. So uh, for that's, for us, that's what I've been keeping a keen eye on. On the ESG side, yeah, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the work that's been done is very much focused on uh, financial institutions and investment firms. I think sometimes from my own perspective as an insurance broker sometimes it's difficult to translate that into what that means for a broking firm and I think we there's a lot of you know small or medium-sized firms like specialist risk groups that do struggle with that so we don't capture the kind of data that a lot of these consultants need to make a, an informed decision about about how we should move forward um, so I think that's that, that's that's an interesting watching brief for for us at specialist risk group mm. I think I think Claire makes a really good point there certainly around if you look at sort of the lower end of SME so, you know, how could a, a broker, if he's asked to collect ESG data, you know, what do they say to the, the hairdressing salon, you know, the owner of the hairdressing salon? You know, you know what is your ESG strategy? You know, that, that, that's, that's challenging, you know, and, and, you know, I think that's where real clarity needs to be, you know, you know they could actually say, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be flippant, is that, well, we turn our lights off at the evening. Right, that's what we do. But that's the sort of you know level where, unless there's greater clarity, you know, then then that transition is going to be very difficult. Michael, do you think the FCA and the PRA are awake to that concern among the industry that perhaps um, some of the regulation in the past has been focused at kind of like 
large um, carriers and providers and the, you know there's a need for greater assistance in terms of um, you know the the wide variety of different types of business models and what some of this regulation means means for them no definitely and I think if we look at ESG I think a lot of focus across the financial services was on the E and on climate change. And I think this is the difficulties that uh, Claire and Mike mentioned. I think if we look more at the S and the G, the social and the governance, I think there is more and less size, um, uh, not linked to the size as as much. So I think this is exactly what the, the FCA is trying to do is thinking, what does it mean to be, to support a sustainable finance? This is a big term. And I think it's something for all of us in the industry to take and say, what does it mean for us as broking? What does it mean for us as insurance beyond the climate change, uh, the climate change element? I think also, I mean, we tend to focus on it, what it means for us as, as firms, what can we do? But equally, there's a huge opportunity for us to step in and help our clients as well. And I think we, sh- I mean, and there are firms out there that are doing a lot around this. Um, and trying to help their clients. Um, but we know with regulation, there's obviously opportunity, and I think we can't lose sight of the opportunity that it, that it affords the insurance and um, industry to be part of that change and to really support clients through that transition by coming up with new products, new ways of looking at risk, etc. Mm, sustainable products that can help um, perhaps policyholders achieve, th- achieve their absolutely, sustainability Emma, goals. Absolutely. I mean, ESG, EDI have been on the radar for a number of years, and I, I hate to say the word, but the other thing that's been on the radar for a number of years is the B word, Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the government is promising insurers a Brexit dividend at last with the end of solvency too. Um, Michael, what can the industry expect from the Prudential Regulation Authority on that subject this year? So I think, first of all, and and I'm sure I will disappoint a lot of people, but I I don't think it's the end of Solvency 2. It's the rebadge of Solvency 2 to something more local, and and there will be a dividend, clearly. So it's Solvency UK, so the acronym is not correct, it's SUCK. Um, so what 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 is it? Is it uh, a relaxing on some rules without going into the technicalities? The impact for in, for general insurers is relatively limited. I think the most of the impact would be on life insurers. So I think the the, the, the dividend will be the investment and the, the flexibility that it will give for lar- large life insurers to be able to invest in in some infrastructure project in the UK. So this is one one of a push from the government. I think it does ra- still a lot of question around how PRA will use that. As you know, it has been quite public, but PRA was not so keen on some of the rules that have been relaxed. I think the question will be how they will supervise going forward. So there's still a bit things in the air. Um, but it seems that the government is quite clear that it will be the agenda, it will be implemented. But I think... Um, that, that yeah. I mean, Claire, does the industry want to see great divergence in, from solvency too? I mean, one of the strengths of the UK in the past has been, obviously, um, the fact that, you know, the kind of the way our rules, you know, fit in with the wider kind of like European and global landscape. I think that, that's the worry. That's mm-hmm. always been the worry. Um, because the further away we are the less likely there is to be any future convergence, if you like. But I mean, first of all, I'd like to talk around that, the, the, the changes to Solvency 2. I think they are very positive because they are, will hopefully play into the government's agenda around um, levelling up. And also it promotes this sort of it, it, the investment into social infrastructure like wind farms and things. So it plays very much into what we were talking to um, 
around ESG. I think that's so. It's re, it is very very important. I think it is quite interesting the little spat that the PRA has had um, with 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 Treasury and the government around the implementation implementation timelines because obviously. The, the influx of, of investment, as I say, plays very much into the government's current agenda of of, of, of um, levelling up and you know creating these infrastructure projects. But I think there was, you know, from when I was at the London Market Group, there was a never never a desire from anybody to have a wholesale bonfire of solvency tool rules because at the end of the day, it took a lot of time, effort, and a huge amount of investment to implement it. And, you know, in, in, and by and large, people think of it as being a good thing. Um, but so, But obviously, from a broking perspective, we want anything to ensure that we have a good competitive um, market for our insurance carriers, etc. So, you know, I think there is sort of pros and cons to it I did think and I'd be interested to hear from Mike and Michael about the the recent um, outburst from the PRA saying that it will increase the risk of them of failure by 20 percent I thought that was very interesting and I'd be quite interesting to know your views on that Michael what's your views on the the increased risk well I, I think you know Listening to sort of Michael and Claire, I think they're right. You know, they're right. You know, it's, it's a bit of a wait and see, really. You know, what's what's it going to look like? You know, and when's it going to be actually brought to the table? You know, I suppose from an insurer lens, if it does free up capital and allows them to manage their capital more efficiently, then from a MGA perspective, then the MGAs may see some benefit of that in terms of the cost of capital and the return they have to make, depending on their financial financial modelling. Um, in in terms of the 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 as Claire sort of alluded to the the intestine spat, you know I think if you look across uh, you know the UK and, and including Gibraltar insurer market, you know uh, our members certainly would always look at the you know the SCR sort of coverage from that perspective. I think uh, Gibraltar in particular, which I think you know Claire was probably alluding to in terms of where there's been some more recent failures. You know the regulator there is you know uh, increase their diligence there's a new team uh, you know brokers as well as insurers you know have security committees in terms of where they place their business so I don't subscribe uh, to that 20% personally uh, I think you know that throwaway line didn't in my view have any sort of underlying evidence to say why it would increase by 20% uh, and in Claire's business, clearly, you know, they are very mindful about where where they place their clients' business and the security of that capital in terms of their ability to pay claims. So that that would be my observation in terms of uh, you know starting off as a wait and see. But you know, I do believe it can only be a good thing, uh, providing it's proportionate. Michael, would you agree? No, I agree, definitely. And I think the um, 25% has been taken out of context. But it was, first of all, it was a life example, if I'm not mistaken, rather than a GI example. And also, I think it does, beyond the number, I think it does show that PRA going there and follow what government asked them to do, but quite reluctantly. Um, and what was interesting, it was the day before a speech to the ABI where it was much more positive from the PRA. And a few days after, it was balanced. So I think they were in between they need to do it. They have tools to control, so it doesn't mean that from one day to another things will change. They have tools to control. I think the question is we'll wait and see to see how they will, it will be implemented. But I think it will be implemented quicker. I, I think yes. it will, I mean, I think we will see some changes being made 
definitely by the end of the year. Michael, don't do you agree? I don't know in terms of um, timing, but the, to be fair, if we look at the political environment, I think they will need to. Uh, so I think it's the feeling we got that they're going there, but a bit reluctantly. I just want to, to insist on the point that Mike made that that is true, and we see that for a lot of clients getting much more scrutiny from their Gibraltar operations, uh, and people have, have raised, and if I compare in the last four years, much more focus on the, the solidity, the, so the resilience, the financial resilience of your career, your MG and then the end career. So, so this is, a, for people that have not done that yet, this is a big focus on the FCA currently, and the Gibraltar regulator have raised the bar definitely compared to four years ago. I mean, the other thing with solvency too is it was something that the industry had lobbied for, I think, literally before it was even enacted, when it was just um, a, a proposed set of rules. Um, I mean, Mike, what do you feel trade bodies are making real progress now when it comes to lobbying the regulators for the removal of red tape that they feel is hampering insurers from helping policyholders? I think, and I'd like to give some credit to sort of Matt Brewers at the FCA. I think Matt is uh, is very open. He's engage, he engages. Uh, you know, he's quite happy to come and and sit and effectively be shot at. To be fair, by by stakeholders from that bit, uh, he he stands his ground on, on things. I think the regulator uh, actually likes if trade associations combine. Uh, so, you know, my peers in terms of, you know, Chris Croft, you know, Sheila Cameron, sort of Steve White, etc. in terms of Bieber, if we combine around, uh, you know, some of the key issues which are impacting all of our respective members, then I do think we can move the chains in terms of the regulator's view. And we did that, you know, reasonably successfully, although we haven't seen the outcome yet, when uh, collectively we had a conversation with Matt and his team around fair value attestation. Uh, but, you know, the key thing for our members, and that would be the same across my peers, is, you know, having these conversations is great, and that's what part of a trade association needs to do. But actually, it's the execution where we see, actually, we have moved uh, the regulator in a particular direction, which benefits the industry overall. Uh, you know, that that's the key in terms of the evidence. And, and so I'm confident that we will do that because of the engagement we're now getting, which I don't think was really evident if I go back sort of two, three years. Michael, with your former regulator hat on, would you would you agree that, I mean, with with um, Brexit and the opportunity to review rules, is Mike right? If if the industry can come together and show consensus and the consumer argument for why this is hampering um, perhaps their access to um, suitable or affordable insurance, you know, the regulator's open to listen and possibly change rules. Definitely, and I think we can point to some evidence of, of what Mike uh, have So specifically in the Lloyd and London market, there was a question around the proportionality of product governance fair value for international business, and we have clarified that very clearly to say this was it was not the intent; it was the consequences of the rules and the way they are designed. So, so clearly uh, it is. I think if I go back just 18 months ago, broking industry was complaining that they were not seeing the FCA. I think now. I think it's you see the FCA a lot. They are coming out, maybe too much, some people would say, but they are there and they are engaged. And I think something I would like to point that is very different is the fact that, and I'm, I'm sure we are going to discuss consumer duty, but they have been much more active on 
for big reform like consumer duty is going out very early to say this is what we see, this is the guidance, this is what we understand, this is our expectation, and much more active so than they, than they did previously for important reform. And if we just compare to pricing, it was le much less engagement. So I think they, I think they taken the lesson, they recognize, um, and I think it will continue. One opportunity that is ahead is the review of IDD. So as part of the overall regulatory reform, and and and. Um, they, this is a di I would say this is a real dividend of Brexit because they will have the opportunity to review the rules without the constraint of a directive, and with consumer duty, we I will expect that they they will use that to review IDD, and there may be some good news there ahead to say can it be more proportionate for some part of the market. So I think this is something, and definitely there is a role for the trade bodies and the industry to be cohesive and say what are the key points they may want to achieve and I think there's a real yeah, real opportunity ahead. Michael, because you've raised it, I'm immediately coming back to you and basically saying, obviously, you know, the consumer duty deadline is fast approaching. Um, and interestingly, the survey sent out by the FCA, one of the first questions is, have you heard about the consumer duty? And that does make my heart sink a little bit. Um, hopefully everyone listening to this podcast has, but can you give us a quick explanation of, you know, what does the consumer duty require for the end of July? Yes, so again, I will try. Uh, so I think the consumer duty is raising the bar in terms of consumer protection. And what it does is putting the onus on firm of demonstrating they deliver a good outcome. So you will say, okay, we don't understand what I just say. So what does it mean in practice? What does it mean is they expect firms to look at their product and say, is my product designed and distributed correctly? Is the pricing to the consumer, so the price that the consumer pay at the end, proportionate to the value of a product and the way the distribution chain, so your role, but also the role of different parties, consistent with uh, this value to customers? The third one, do customers understand the product they have purchased? And the fourth element is, do people get the support that through the processes? So when we say processes or key interaction with the customers, is not only the sales process, but also the key moment of truth in insurance, the point of claims, the point of doing a, a, a mid-term adjustments, um, vulnerable customers that may need more support in certain times. So do people deliver the good outcome for that? But the more importantly, the onus is on the firm to demonstrate. And I think one of the difficulty with consumer duty is moving away from tick boxing compliance to do you have EMI and insight to demonstrate that? Claire, what do um, brokers, providers, insurers today, you know, with just a couple of months to go to the deadline, need to be doing? Um, is, is it making sure that MI is, you know... Well, it's all encompassing. I mean, a any broker of any particular, any size needs to have a formal project plan in place. That was the requirement that had been signed and it had been signed off by the board. The deadline for that was October 2022. Um, but certainly, yes, I think... One of the focuses and the, and the work stream we're pushing forward, you know, as quickly as we can is the production of MI, because obviously a lot of us are on legacy systems and the ability to capture the data that we need to make those informed decisions about how we are progressing and, and even going forward if we are actually meeting the objectives is really key. Um, I think also the whole thing around, you know, what Michael was saying about the touch points in the process. I think that's quite important because, you know, the expectation is that it's as easy to make changes and, and cancel as it is to 
actually buy the product in the first place. And I think a lot of these things, what we're finding as a broker is that we can define what we want and what we need, but where we're reliant on third parties, that's where we're going to potentially find the difficulty because whilst we can tell them what we want, their ability to then implement it when all of the market is doing the same thing and potentially in a different way, that's where we're going to have a problem. Certainly with the platform providers that we use across our retail business, which is the one which is obviously the most impacted by this particular um, change, far-reaching change, um, I think that's that's where we're, we're, we're going to be struggling. But it is the MI work stream, I, I, I definitely agree, because at the end of the day, you know, as good brokers, we've always had good customer outcomes on our radar. It's not new to us as an industry, and I'm sure Mike and Mike will agree, it, it's, you know, it's part of our DNA. But being able to evidence it, and what Mike was saying about moving away from the tick box is, is, is quite a step. Um, and, and, and we are limited in some respects by the systems we, and we use. So, yeah, that's from my perspective as a broker. Claire, um, I mean, such an interesting point in terms of kind of MI. Mike, in terms of where MGA sit in the kind of wider insurance ecosystem, would you agree that there's a real challenge at the moment in terms of you may have got your MI right, but it's reaching out to different parts of the value chain and making sure, you know, you've got the wider MI um, picture of what's going on in terms of the value chain, absolutely, and, and Claire's hit the nail on the head on that. And you know, we've we've got out to our members uh, around the consumer duty, and they've responded in terms of for us to provide feedback to to the to the regulator. And and I suppose I would capture it under the word nuances. So you know, you have MGAs who've got clear line of sight in terms of. Uh, brokers who they do business with and as Claire's alluded to you know that's not overly difficult in terms of getting that evidence and MI and the data but then there are some MGAs in very specialist niche areas who actually may never actually touch the client etc and can't reach that client and therefore their argument is well how are we supposed to evidence on that so so there are a number of nuances you know and you know, we could probably spend the next hour between all of us going through those nuances, you know, in terms of a co-manufacturer responsibility, etc. So I think overall, you know, my first point is that, you know, no one I believe in our industry gets up in the morning not wanting to give a good outcome fundamentally and that's the principle which you know we all need to keep feeding back to the regulator that, you know, that's in the DNA to use Claire's, you know, uh, Claire's phrase. Uh, secondly, around consumer duty, you know, proportionality is key, okay, against that against that first principle. And thirdly, it would need to evolve, and we'd hope the regulator does accept that there needs to be an evolution whilst these nuances get clarified so that everyone has a clear view of what their expectation is in order to meet in that consumer duty. Michael, would you agree that that's the, what needs to be going on right now? Definitely. And I think so. What, what Mike described is the clarity of a role and a responsibility within the value chain. And this is one of the difficulties. I think it's uh, we know the insurance sector is a sector that is very interconnected and people having different roles and responsibilities. And I think clarifying that and, and it will evolve over time, it will not be perfect. I think where firm, back to your question, Emma, or where firm should be now, I think they should. I will describe as bite the bullet because they have done a lot of planning, as Claire mentioned, a lot of uh, reviewing. I think now and four months to July should be 
what are the key decisions we need to make and change and do things differently. And it doesn't mean um, a wholesale change. It may mean focusing on the outliers, focusing on some practice you have identified, focusing on some processes that have specifically pinch points. So Claire mentioned the review of customer journey. That is one of the critical elements. Most of the firm have done that. Now it's, okay, the so what? And what are the priorities? And I think the regulators, uh, Matt Burris has been very clear, they don't expect everything green and singing and dancing by July, but they want to see, okay, I've done my review. This is the key three, four priorities. What does it mean and how it translates to better and different outcome? So this is what should going on. And I expect this discussion at the board now, very difficult decision to say, yeah, let's do that slightly differently, or let's test that, or what does it mean to do this or that? This is what should going on in the next uh, four months. I mean, Michael, uh, and uh, as every and uh, quite rightly, everyone's kind of focused on the July deadline. But this isn't this isn't a one and done regulation either, is it? So, Michael, I mean, uh, you touched there in terms of like board discussions, scrutiny across the business. What what ongoing work do, do brokers and providers need to be doing in terms of making sure they continue to comply with? So definitely, and I think the, the July deadline is. So maybe we should stop saying a deadline, but it's a toll gate into a new world of consumer duty implemented. And when I say new world is the regulator supervising differently and the firms doing something different. So it's moving away from the tick box compliance we discussed. I think what will happen after July will be monitoring. Firms should have or starting to invest in better MI, better insight, is acting on this insight. So this is what we will see going forward. And I think is building this infrastructure. So there was one element that is quite important um, around consumer duties on consumer understanding and the requirement of doing testing. I expect over time firms will be smarter around that, develop tools, technology. There's a lot of providers there coming with a miracle solution to do that. I think this thing will evolve over time and, and, and it will be a new skill set, uh, I, I guess, in terms of behavioral science, testing, and how we get this insight back into the product design and distribution. I would say that that customer verification is the most difficult thing that we've been grappling with, is that how do we get a decent outcome? A, a survey really isn't going to cut it, because obviously you know, the, 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 the rate of return and completion is quite poor, and, and, and you tend to find that the people that do respond to those are the ones that have had difficulties, so therefore you get a disproportionate you know you get an untrue view of what's going on but from my perspective and I don't know whether Michael and Mike agree with me is that this has taken will take a monumental effort on the behalf on behalf of our profession I really want to see something evidential from the regulator that it's actually shifted the dial because you know you know it's a very tight deadline there's a lot to do and, and I want some proper evidence that actually it's achieved the objectives that the FCA set out to achieve by doing this work. I think that is really important for me because the trouble is if, if they don't, the next time they do something like this, people are going to be looking around and saying, what was the point? What was the point? Mm, I, want, I, I, yeah. I will do it. I think everybody really wants to make sure we have got ones, but it, there has got to be a, a critical review of, 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 of whether the regulator has met its objectives. Mike, is that something you'll be pushing for? Yeah, and, and the evidence really, if you look at the exercise around fair value, which again was created a significant industry on its own, you know, when you got to the end of that, there wasn't one product, to my knowledge, was actually withdrawn. 
and uh, we shared with the regulator that some brokers actually withdrew products because of the onus and the burden of the paperwork and administration. We also shared that some innovative new products were actually shelved because they felt that you know, uh, the regulatory burden was going to make it sort of uneconomical. So Claire's point is absolutely right at the heart of this, that, you know, is was first and foremost, was there a massive issue initially so that consumer duty was required? Uh, question mark, actually, because as I said earlier, everyone wakes up with a view to give a better outcome. But secondly, again, you know, can we see the measures and the regulator to play back to the industry that, you know, to use again Claire's uh, example, that the dials or the chains have significantly moved, not slightly, but significantly moved in line and proportion with the amount of work and effort having to go in to implement it. Michael, will there be a cost-benefit analysis? I mean, with past regulations like the Retail Distribution Review, there were, and that had mixed results, didn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So two things I think maybe we should clarify. I think on fair value, uh, and, I, and I understand and I see and I witness with our clients the, the burden it created. I think, I think Mike would agree, Matt Burris recognized that very clearly. I think he, he was quite Great. open and frank around that. It didn't work as expecting the fair value. I think we should isolate fair value versus consumer duty because consumer duty is broader and for all FS. I think the regulator has also been clear that they consider insurance in a bit better place compared to other sectors. So I think we should bank that as an industry to say, okay, let, let's when VFC is positive. So the cost-benefit analysis or post-lesson uh, learned is clearly part of a methodology. So they are going to do that. And I think for people that are involved in that, they are doing that currently for the pricing rules and pricing practices with a, a review in 2024 and they are preparing as we speak. For consumer duty, I think, it's very legitimate for people that are regulated to say we want to see the benefit of that or what does it mean. I think my suggestion is focusing on outliers because we all know practices that we will not find very um, very nice. I think we will, and, and I'm speaking about things that there will be no debate. It's not at the margin. It would be things that we all say, yeah, it doesn't look right. I think it's focusing on these outliers that I think will help because sometimes the industry suffer the reputation from these outliers that doesn't represent the majority, but does impact the overall sense that the regulator will see, because the regulator will focus, of course, on the thing complaints that they come, bad practice that they see, numbers that doesn't match up. So this, this give a color that doesn't reflect the, the majority. So I think we should, again, focusing on that and how we can improve practices going forward. Mike, Michael, on, on that theme, and I don't disagree with your, your sentiment, would you say that if it's focusing on those outliers where, you know, let's say behaviours are poor, would you agree that the proportionality of consumer duty is in line with to try and identify those outliers? So, so there is a risk of that. I think on fair value it was the case. So on fair value I will agree that it has been disproportionate for part of the, of the industry where the level of risk was not was, was not the, the same. As, and, and I think the definition and if i go on on one specific topic the definition of sme i think is a question to say does it surely apply the same for a retail a real individual versus an sme and within sme a macro sme that really behave like an individual versus a very large sophisticated sme so clearly i think there is a question around proportionality i, I agree i think the, the key thing on consumer duty that we should embrace as an industry is the onus is more on the firm to define what is the good outcome. So I think there is an opportunity here. And I guess the FCA will be more relaxed to 
to, so more comfortable to relax on rules, EVC that the principal base on consumer duty is taken on board by firms. So I think there is a, a chicken and egg question, and I think they will really look at the, the way how both take that seriously to say, I understand the outcome and I demonstrate the outcome. I think this can change potentially. I want to be very positive on, on this Thursday morning that it can change potentially the interrelation with, with the regulators. Uh, again, very start of a journey, very early days, but this is the direction of travel. And I think the discussion you will be involved, Mike, in the review of the IDD, I think this will be a nice debate to say, now that we have this principle base and both doing the right thing, can we relax a bit more very prescriptive rules that may be a burden for some areas? But I, I guess that my objection originally to how they were going to measure the effectiveness was, you know, complaints to FOS. You know, there can be a number of reasons why those increase or decline based on the current economic climate, you know, all those sorts of things. So, you know, to me, the, the, the enormous amount of effort that people are having to put in to have that as the only metric that was mentioned is, is, is really not going to cut it with me. Not when I've had to put so much effort into demonstrating and, and producing MI to demonstrate how we as a broker have, um, have have responded and continue to monitor how well that we're doing. It seems pretty light to me. And, I, and I'm not going to sort of back down on that point because I think it's really, really important. And definitely a very blunt tool to get to the bottom of whether or not um, policyholders are satisfied with the products and services they receive, Claire. Absolutely, Emma. Um, which what was it it's as if there's an abundance of regulation i'm pretty sure we could probably go on for another hour but to kind of to conclude the podcast and kind of give a quick overview claire what can the insurance industry do to stay on the right side of evolving regulation and how can they u- learn to use compliance to their advantage what's your t- what would be your tip what what's the one thing that people need to bear in mind when they're kind of plowing through ESG EDI consumer duty rules solvency too what what do they need to bear I, in I mind I think that how how we approach it at SRG is to look and and do a high level gap analysis first of all to identify you know if we get a dear CEO letter or equally, when we ha- when we got the consumer duty, is to do a gap analysis. And I don't, you know that doesn't have to be you know full scale, you know, two month analysis, but just do a gap analysis against what you currently have, versus what the expectations are. If you can wade through and, and identify them, and then obviously take a proportionate view. And I think I think that proportionality piece is really important um, to de- to determine what you need to do. And, and I would say a risk based approach. I don't mean you should. When I say risk-based, is what you focus on at that point in time, in order to to bring in those outliers. And I, I really do agree with, with what Michael was saying about you know just identify where your outliers are because it is very easy to get swamped and overwhelmed by what's going on. If you look at the the grid which that the FCA produces, which is around all of their objectives, the timelines and stuff. You know, when you look at it, you you can be completely overwhelmed but I think that to take that proportionate approach to do those gap analysis to focus on your outliers is what I would recommend how to to ensure that you that you you get through it unscathed and say that and stay the right side but equally look at the opportunities that some of these changes represent you know we talked about ESG we talked about the opportunities to help our clients etc I think that's really important as well 
Mike, what should the insurance industry be doing to learn to use compliance to advantage? And that's something you've touched on with your recent your EDI program, isn't it? In terms of you know, it shouldn't just be seen as oh dear, this is another area we need to you know. Often, sometimes compliance can help you be a better business. Yeah, I think I think you know you know regulation is not going to go away, so that's very clear on that. So it's a case of how you know you embrace that and you know how you embed that in your business in a proportionate way uh, and clearly as we've discussed on this podcast you know the, the evidence is absolutely cru- critical and you need to have sort of a good broad and, and library of evidence to to provide that what you're doing for good outcomes is is it can be uh, evidenced appropriately i think from a trade association perspective you know, my view is that you know we will continue to lobby and engage with the regulator uh, f- on behalf of our members on issues around current or new regulation, which actually we do not see on behalf of our members providing any real value in terms of you know the stakeholders involved. I.e., if it's just adding another layer of administration and not move into any positive outcome or shifting the chains in, in the positive direction, then we will do that. And, and my closing sort of comment is that, you know, we need our members to feed back to us as their association in order that we can collectively, alongside my peers, certainly if there's a, you know, similar concerns in, you know, Claire's sort of market and in the insurer market, that we can lobby collectively actually and get the ear of the regulator to recognise in certain instances that you know the regulation is wrong you know and it's not adding any value to to the market and and, and that's what we'll continue to do michael last word goes to you how do you stay on the right side of regulation i think it's really recognizing i think we touched on it before is recognizing the m- moving away from the tick boxing compliance because i think all the regulation we mentioned today consumer duty, fair value, pricing, are very intrusive because they question the business model of insurers. So I think it's really focusing on what is my business model today? Do I understand the impact on this potential change? Again, impact, negative impact, risk, but also opportunities of business model. And we have seen people starting to do that. So I think this is the main focus. I think I will also say, as a piece of advice, is we do see the regulator 18 months ago say they want to be much more assertive, and I think we see evidence of that. So they are, for, for good reason, what we have seen, but they do question and be much more data-led. So I think the effort, we, what we spoke about, MI, insight, outliers, is really what the regulator does. So they do receive much more data than 18 months ago, and they start to act on it. So I think it's a, a point of attention for focusing on, on this. Mm. To definitely know your business model and have the data to support why you've made those decisions. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Insurance Post podcast. I'd like to thank Mike, Claire and Michael for joining us and sharing their insight on the latest regulation and what action insurers need to take to be compliant in 2023. As always, also thanks to you for listening to the Insurance Post podcast. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to Insurance Post and following us on Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. Make sure you come back next week for Insurance Post's Power List, the Top 40 Countdown. Until then, this is Emran Hughes signing off. The Insurance Post podcast is a product of InfoPro Digital.